turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. I'd actually like you to turn to the beginning of 2 Corinthians, though today we come to Paul's final words in his second letter to the Corinthians. So open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 as we, uh, as par- part of the sermon, he'll just be to walk through quickly the whole of this letter. But what a letter it has been. The Apostle Paul has poured out his heart before the believers in Corinth and, and men, men and women whose conversion to Christ that he witnessed as he brought the gospel to the Achaean Peninsula in southern Greece just a few years earlier. Men and women whom he called his beloved children and, and he their father in the gospel. A congregation that was beset with problems and difficulties from its very inception, from factionalism to gross immorality, from misunderstandings of Christian liberty to the abuse of spiritual gifts, a congregation that brought Paul unparalleled joy at the same time as unequaled grief and pain, a church whose very existence in the epicenter of Greco-Roman paganism testified to the power of the gospel, and yet a church that was hoodwinked by false teachers peddling a mix of Jewish legalism and fleshly triumphalism and openly uh, attacking the ministry and character of the Apostle Paul. When Timothy delivered Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he learned that false teachers from Jerusalem had invaded the Corinthian church and they were inciting a rebellion against Paul's apostleship and Paul's gospel. And Paul thought that by making an ahead of schedule visit to Corinth, he could address this mutiny in person. He could clarify misunderstandings and then just move forward. But when he got there, an influential man in the church sided with the false apostles and openly maligned Paul before the entire congregation. Instead of defending Paul's character and Paul's gospel, the Corinthians allowed that man's factiousness uh, and the false apostles' influence to go unchecked. And after this sorrowful visit, Paul wrote the Corinthians a a severe letter, sternly rebuking them for failing to properly deal with sin in the church and for straying from his apostolic teaching and message. Then he sent that letter by Titus uh, and and then arranged to meet Titus to hear how the Corinthians responded. And we we hear of that report in chapter 7 where we learn that God sovereignly worked through Paul's severe letter so that the majority of the Corinthians repented of their sin and reaffirmed their love and loyalty to Paul. And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians to decisively refute the accusations of the false teachers, to fully vindicate uh, his apostolic ministry and message, and to encourage the Corinthians to remain faithful to the gospel. And so he begins in the opening section of chapter 1 explaining that his many sufferings in ministry don't discredit his apostolic genuineness, but they instead authenticate his ministry because his many afflictions are the occasion for his experience of God's overwhelming comfort. Divine strength displayed in human weakness, divine glory manifested in human shame becomes a key theme throughout the entire letter. In the second half of chapter one, he assures the Corinthians of his integrity and his dealings with them including his decision to change plans and visit them ahead of schedule, a decision that he made, he says, out of love and concern for them, not like what the false apostles said, that it was out of fickleness and fleshliness. From chapter 2, verse 14, all the way to chapter 7, verse 4, then Paul launches into this extended definition and defense 
of new covenant gospel ministry. He speaks of being a soldier in Christ's army, always led in triumph over sin and Satan despite persecution and discouragement. He speaks of being an aroma of death to death and an aroma of life to life. How the proclamation of the very same gospel results in the salvation of some and in the hardening of others, all according to God's sovereign election. In chapter 3, he speaks about the superiority of the new covenant over the old, how the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones was glorious, but how the ministry of righteousness by the Spirit of God is far more glorious. The glory of the law revealed in the face of Moses, even which, in which Moses' face shone, is no match for the glory of God revealed in the face of Christ, which the new covenant believer beholds with unveiled face and by that sight is transformed into Christ's likeness. In the opening verses of chapter 4, Paul once again proclaims his ministerial integrity against the accusations of the false apostles. And even if the gospel he preaches doesn't draw huge crowds, those whom God has chosen from before the foundation of the world do by grace have their eyes opened to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. He explains in chapter 4, verse 7, that the treasure of the gospel message is housed in earthen vessels. And so faithful servants of Christ should expect to suffer. The only glorious thing about gospel ministry is the message preached, not the lives of the preachers. And so the faithful minister endures suffering in ministry by trusting in the resurrection power of God, by remembering that momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And then in the first half of chapter 5, Paul speaks about that resurrection hope that the worst that the enemies of the gospel can do is kill us and they do nothing but chase us right to heaven. And so we can be free to lay our lives down for the gospel now. And then in 5.14 to 21, Paul tells of how the glory of the gospel itself so brilliantly displays the love of Christ, the love of Christ that compels him, he says, to sacrificial ministry. And that climaxes in that great statement in, in verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And he urges the Corinthians to put all their trust in that gospel, to not neglect the day of salvation that has come upon them in this new covenant era by going back to the shadows of Mosaic ceremonialism. Instead, chapter 6, verse 14 through to chapter 7, verse 1, they are to cut themselves off from any fellowship with false teachers who are nothing but unbelievers, he says. They're just idols in the temple of God. And so in 6, 11 to 13, and then again in 7, 2 to 4, Paul pleads with them to make room for us in your hearts. Open wide to us just as I've opened wide to you. Then in chapter 7, verses 5 to 16, we get that report from Titus of the repentance of the majority of the congregation when he visited with a severe letter. And we learn that the majority of the church had been shaken from their stupor and had been, had been returned to faithfulness. And Paul speaks much of his great joy for this reconciliation. 
And so since the severe letter did its job, as Paul turns to chapters 8 and 9, he's able to discuss the offering he's been administrating for the poor saints in Jerusalem. The Corinthians had begun that collection a year prior before everything was stalled by the conflicts surrounding the false apostles. And now Paul writes to exhort them to bring that effort to completion. And that's because he also informs them he's going to be sending Titus and two other brothers back to Corinth ahead of him to ensure that everything is prepared for when he comes. And then in chapters 10 to 13, Paul sets his sights on the false apostles themselves, as well as on that obstinate, unrepentant minority of the church that still lie under the spell of these heretical imposters. He addresses his opponents head on, exposing them as servants of Satan who only masquerade as apostles of Christ. And he also forcefully rebukes the unrepentant minority for failing to make a clean break from these false teachers. Some of the most caustic irony that you see anywhere in Scripture comes in the so-called fool's speech in chapter 11, verses 16 to chapter 12, verse 10, where Paul dons the mask of a boastful fool to show the Corinthians how foolish they've been for becoming infatuated with, it, with fleshly boasting. But from the middle of chapter 12, through to the end of the letter, Paul acts once again as a spiritual father to his wayward children. He assures them of his love for them, his willingness to spend and be spent for their souls. He warns them that when he, when he comes to, to Corinth this third time, he, he doesn't want to find them out of sorts. He says in chapter 13, verse 2, I've previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. If there's no repentance, he will exercise apostolic authority and will remove them from the church. And so he calls them for, to, calls them to examine themselves in 13.5 to see whether they're genuinely in the faith. But he expresses hope that they'll pass that test and will come to realize that he is the Lord's chosen servant for their spiritual growth and well-being. He is the instrument of God's grace in their life. And so all of that brings him to his final remarks. The last words he wants ringing in the ears of the Corinthians after laboring through this magnificent letter as they anticipate his imminent return. And those last words comprise our text for this morning. So follow along as I read 2 Corinthians 13, verses 11 to 14. Paul says, finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, the final words of any communication are significant. How much more a letter so important as 2 Corinthians, a letter so full of Paul's heart that so transparently expresses his deep affection for his spiritual children, people who occupy so special a place in his heart. And these last words are not only full of significance for the Corinthians, they're also full of instruction for us as well, reflecting as they do Paul's pastoral concerns and priorities 
for his precious congregation as they approach a significant watershed moment in their lives. And as we seek to benefit from this magnificent letter right down to the final greetings, we'll group these final remarks into three components as we examine them together. First, we have optimistic exhortations. Second, there are affectionate greetings. And third, Trinitarian blessings. Optimistic exhortations, affectionate greetings, and Trinitarian blessings. Let's consider first then these optimistic exhortations. We see them in verse 11. Paul writes, Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. And right away, you notice this marked change in tone. Paul has issued warnings to the unrepentant minority, but he doesn't want to end on a note of sharpness. He doesn't want the final words of his letter to leave them in a state of exasperation. He wants to comfort them. He wants to, to season his sharp reproofs, as it were, with honey so that they might be received well, so that the Corinthians might actually benefit from his correction. Truly a lesson to each of us who it falls to to bring correction. And so now he turns to address the members of the Corinthian congregation as a whole, and he does so with affectionate optimism. Finally, brethren, they are brothers and sisters. They are members of the same family of God. They are adopted sons and daughters through the gospel. They are members of the one body of Christ. Say, wait a minute, didn't he just call them to examine themselves precisely because there may, some of them may not be genuine brethren? Yes, but here he expresses his optimism, his hope in God's grace that those who need to repent will do so and that they'll be recognized once again to be genuine brothers and sisters in Christ. And then after this optimistic and affectionate address come five imperatives, five rapid-fire staccato exhortations that sum up his concerns for these dear people. And they could serve well as a, gen a general summary, a, a blueprint of the values that ought to mark any healthy church. Paul exhorts them to joy, to maturity, to wisdom, to unity, and to peace. Joy, maturity, wisdom, unity, and peace. First, he exhorts them to joy. He says, finally, brethren, rejoice. And in one sense, it's no surprise that Paul calls them to rejoice. After all, rejoicing characterizes the Christian life. Joy is the centerpiece of all Christian experience. It's at the top of the list of those virtues that the Spirit produces in the life of the believer. In Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. In Romans 14, 17, Paul says that the kingdom of God itself is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy is the very heritage of the Lord Jesus, the legacy he left his disciples. John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. The goal of his teaching was their genuine joy. 
The psalmists command us to sing for joy in the Lord, Psalm 33.1, to delight ourselves in the Lord, Psalm 37.4, to be glad in the Lord, Psalm 97.12. So Philip Hughes wrote that joy should be a foremost mark of every Christian community. Another commentator said that joy is the distinctive mark of the believer in Christ Jesus. And perhaps the Puritan Richard Baxter said it best when he said, delighting in God and in his word and in his ways is the flower and life of true religion. And so really when Paul calls them to rejoice, he's calling them to nothing less than to be genuine Christians because joy is the flower and life of true religion. And why is that? It's because as Christians, we have so much to be joyful about. We are guilty criminals, violators of the law of God, rightly sentenced to eternal punishment, cut off from God, objects only of his wrath. And yet because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we who deserve to be cut off from God have access to our loving Father. We are united to Christ by covenant. We are forgiven of all of our sins. We are credited with the perfect righteousness of Christ. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. We are assured of eternal life, free from sin, forever in the Lord's presence. We should be in hell right now. And yet here we sit in the house of the Lord, in the fellowship of the redeemed, singing praises to Christ, enjoying every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Rejoicing ought to be like breathing for the Christian. Rejoicing ought to be the Christian's mother tongue, the dialect of the redeemed. Hey, what's your first language? It's rejoicing. It's praise to God. Because infinite blessings such as we enjoy cannot be received with indifference. They must be treasured in gladness. And so Paul's, and Paul's embrace of the centrality of joy in the Christian life is evident even in this letter where there is so much grief. Chapter 6, verse 10, he describes himself as a minister of the gospel as one who is sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing could be the subtitle of Christian ministry. Chapter 7, verse 4, he says, he is overflowing with joy even in the midst of all our affliction. And that's actually the subtitle that I gave to this letter. Joyful, enduring ministry even in the midst of affliction. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says the Corinthians are those who ought to make him rejoice. He says he hopes that his joy would be their joy, that they would find joy in making him rejoice. And in chapter 1, verse 24, he characterizes his entire ministry to the Corinthians as being a sunergos, a co-laborer for their joy. Everything he did was to deepen their joy in Jesus, even his sarcastic mockery of their sin and his severe warnings of discipline. There may have been not a few Corinthians who heard, finally, brethren, rejoice and thought, are you kidding me? Are, are you being serious right now? After what you put us through, we just sat here and listened to this letter, this letter read and you beat us up. 
You called us fools. You mocked us. You told us to examine whether we were even Christians. You threatened us with church discipline. Now you say rejoice. And Paul would say, yes. Everything I say, everything I write, everything I do is to labor to increase your joy in Christ. And since you've allowed your joy in Christ to be displaced by joy in sin and in fleshliness and in false doctrine, my rebukes and my calls for repentance are nothing less than hope-filled entreaties for you to forsake the broken cisterns of the false pleasures of the world which can never truly satisfy you and to come and feast the appetites of your soul on the fullness of joy to be had in Jesus who is the fountain of living water. So yes, brethren, rejoice. Stop seeking your joy in sin and error, return and rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, he calls them to be made complete. And we saw this verb back in verse nine, where he tells the Corinthians that he prays they would be made complete. And so what he prays for them in verse nine, he exhorts them to in verse 11. This is the word katartizo, which has the basic meaning of to put in order, to restore, in Matthew 4.21, the term is used of fishermen mending their nets. In medical context, the word referred to the setting of a broken bone. Paul uses the term in Galatians 6.1 when he says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in, the tre- in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So it has this idea of restoration, of, of putting back into place, of setting right, of repairing what was broken and restoring what was lost. He's calling them once again to to mend their ways, be restored to harmony and wholeness, both in their relationship to God and in their relationship to one another in the church. He exhorts them to press for a level of spiritual maturity that manifests in the rejection of false doctrine, in repentance from immorality and walking in holiness, and in the embrace of the genuine church of Christ and the true gospel. It says, do whatever you have to do to come to a place of harmonious restoration into the truth. Third, in addition to joy and maturity, he calls them to wisdom. Now, the NAS translates this next word as be comforted, but I don't think that's quite the best rendering based on the context. The word is parakaleste, which, for, which is from parakaleo, which depending on the context can speak of both encouragement and comfort on the one hand and exhortation and admonition on the other. It's similar to the English word encourage. You know, I can encourage you by coming alongside and comforting you and reassuring you that you're doing a good job, that everything's going to be okay. Or uh, I can encourage you, for example, to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. So encourage can mean to comfort and reassure in in some contexts, and it can mean to urge and exhort in others. Well, parakaleo is similar to that. And so the New American Standard opts for be comforted, but I think the overall context of correction and calls for restoration to genuine Christian experience, that make it better better translated, be exhorted. Be exhorted which is to say, receive my exhortations, heed my appeals, accept my admonitions. Don't leave without paying heed to what I have called you to do in this letter. And what's he called them to do? We've run through them. Be reconciled to God, 520. 
Receive not the grace of God in vain, 6.1. Open their hearts to him, right? Repudiate partnership with the false apostles who aren't genuine believers in Christ. Abound in the gracious work of generosity, of giving for the, the Jerusalem church. Warmly receive the men that he sent to, correct, to collect that offering. Examine themselves. Make sure that you really do belong to Christ. And then here at the conclusion of his letter, he's calling them to just consider all of the exhortations, all of the imperatives that he's given them throughout the letter and says, obey it all. Do what I've called you to do. Don't forget what I've exhorted you to. And I call this an exhortation to wisdom because wisdom receives correction from qualified spiritual leaders while folly rejects that correction. That point's made over and over again in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 10, 17 says, he is on the path of life who heeds instruction. He who ignores reproof goes astray. Proverbs 12, 1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Proverbs 15, 31 and 32, he whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. See, wise people receive correction and admonition. They submit themselves to biblical authority. Those who stiffen their neck against correction and rebel against divinely instituted authority, according to Proverbs, are stupid. They, they despise themselves and they go astray. If the Corinthians are going to be a healthy church, if they're going to experience divine blessing, they must exhibit enough wisdom to heed correction. Next comes an exhortation to unity. Paul calls the Corinthians to be like-minded. Literally, the phrase means to think the same thing. One of the commentators says it means to share an identical outlook and common action. So this is a call to common conviction. It's a call to doctrinal unity. Be of the same mind. Think the same thing. Notice what Paul does not say. Paul does not say, guys, I recognize that there are some divisions going on in the church you know, some of you have this perspective and others of you have that perspective. And who's to say that your perspective is more valid than their perspective? I mean, doctrine is divisive after all, and unity is more important than doctrinal debate. You need to just agree to disagree. Paul does not call the Corinthians to agree to disagree. Because agreeing to disagree is not unity. Agreeing to disagree is simply being comfortable with your disunity. No, he says, be of the same mind. Instead of agreeing to disagree, like Phil, Phil Johnson has said, agree to argue with one another, agree to patiently work through the issues together until one side actually refutes the other and through ironing, iron sharpening iron, you actually come to a common understanding of the truth. Let's not agree to disagree. Let's agree to argue until the truth is made plain. Biblical truth is too important to just ignore your differences. Paul says, work through your differences. That's a priority for all of Christ's churches. Romans chapter 15, verses five and six. 
Paul says to the church in Rome, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, God is not glorified when we just agree to disagree and set our doctrinal differences aside. He's glorified when the church can praise him with one voice, according to the same mind. Imagine if we, as we go into the, the worship service in a few moments, the choir is all singing different notes on different pages of different songs. That's not one voice that glorifies the Lord. But what do we hear every Sunday morning? We hear a harmony of voices singing together, all in the same step that make this beautiful music that glorifies Christ. That's what Paul is calling from them. The song of your lives ought to be on the same page with the rest of the church. God's not glorified by discord. He's not a God of, un of disorder, but of peace. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul tells the church of Philippi that he wants to see them standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In Philippians 2, 2, he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. And then he says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, 10, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. The premium that Paul puts on a substantive unity of mind in the church simply cannot be overstated. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that every Christian has to have the same opinion on absolutely everything. There are matters of indifference in the Christian life. There are issues that are matters of black and white biblical truth, but there are, are issues that are a matter of wisdom and conscience. Paul talks about those kinds of things in Romans chapter 14, some in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. But that is not what the Corinthians were dealing with. They were not divided on the color of the carpet. They were divided on doctrinal issues, the nature and entailments of the gospel, the doctrines of Christ and salvation, matters of biblical authority. And it is an unfaithful, sickly church that prizes a substanceless unity, a paper unity, at the expense of a robust doctrinal oneness. A thriving, healthy church is not impatient with conflict over matters of doctrine. They work through those issues until they're convinced by the scriptures and they come out to be of the same mind. Paul says, work through your issues. Sit down together, commit the time, put the coffee on. Be of the same mind, be like-minded. And when that happens... When the members of a church make it a priority to come to a common conviction through the disciplined study of the scriptures, there will be peace. And that's Paul's fifth exhortation in verse 11. Live in peace. By God's grace, labor to get yourselves into a state in which you're thinking the same thing about essential biblical truth. And when you have common convictions about the most important matters in life, you will find that there will be peace. No more bickering, no more jealousy, no more factions, which of course is exactly what they had been experiencing because of the introduction of false doctrine from the false apostles. 
No, there will be genuine peace rooted in biblical truth. And something to notice about all these exhortations is that they are each imperatives in the present tense, which communicates continuous action. See, Paul didn't believe that these virtues could be achieved by some significant one-time effort. He's not asking the Corinthians to have an afternoon meeting so that they could get on their same page and get their act together. No, if a church is going to be marked by joy, maturity, wisdom, unity, and peace, those virtues have to be constantly cultivated. They need to be consciously pursued every moment of the day. They take work. Pastor John writes, as believers grow in grace, they must constantly reevaluate their priorities, get their behavior in line with Scripture, and be restored to spiritual wholeness. Theological errors need to be corrected. Biblical knowledge needs to be increased. Sin needs to be dealt with. Violated relationships need to be restored. Laziness, indifference, and apathy need to be turned into energetic, devoted service. And all of that takes work. In Grace Life, what it means for us is that there can be no resting on our laurels in regard to these things. The temptation can be for us who by and large are not dealing with the kind of conflicts and divisions that the Corinthians were dealing with, certainly not on a church-wide scale. The temptation can be for us to say, hey, this is Grace Church. We're okay. We get this. We're, we're, we are doctrinally sound. We, we do have the same mind. We, we, you know, we, we're, we're just tempted to, to slack off and take it easy a bit. But friends, though we may enjoy spiritual peace with God and, and relative peace with one another, this is not peacetime. The peace for which we are to strive comes only through making war against our fleshly thinking and habits. It's peace through strength, and the strength that we exhibit comes against sin, first in ourselves and then in one another. It's only as we constantly examine our hearts and lives according to the searching light of God's word and, and submissively bring our thoughts and attitudes and behaviors into subjection to scripture that we can have the unity and peace that Paul is prescribing for us. Say, Mike, that sounds exhausting. Well, Paul knows that that sounds exhausting and so he appends a promise to all these imperatives. Look again at verse 11. He says, and the God of love and peace will be with you. You need a motivation to devote yourselves to the constant pursuit of joy and wisdom and maturity and unity and peace. Paul says, the all-glorious, all-satisfying, consummately beautiful God of the universe will be with you if you do these things, if you cultivate these things. The presence of God, who is the God of all love and the God of all peace, who is your greatest treasure and brings the most enduring satisfaction, he will be with you. And Charles Hodge writes, the presence of God gives perfect peace and fills the soul with joy unspeakable and full of glory. It's the restoration of the original and normal relation between God and the soul and secures at once its purification and blessedness. He who has the presence of God can feel no want. And so Paul's final remarks begin with optimistic exhortations. Second, they continue with affectionate greetings. 
Affectionate greetings in verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. So Paul has just exhorted the Corinthians to unity and joy and peace. Now he calls them to express that unity, joy, and peace by an external token of affection, which he calls a holy kiss. It was common in the ancient Near East for members of the same family to greet one another with a kiss. We see that throughout the Old Testament from the very beginning. In Genesis 27, verses 26 and 27, when Jacob steals Esau's blessing from Isaac, Isaac, who's you know, advanced in years and so is blind, being, you know, he's blinded, his vision is, is dulled. He calls who he thinks is Esau to himself, but it's really Jacob. And he says, my son, kiss me. And he smells Esau's wrapped, right? And he smells like the, the, the game of the field. And he says, oh, this must be Esau. Let me give him a blessing. But it was, the, it was a normal thing. Come, kiss me, my son. It was customary. Genesis 31, 28, Laban speaks as if it's a great insult that he not be allowed to kiss his sons and daughters upon uh, greeting them, upon meeting them after a time apart. And there are conflicting reports in the sources, but it seems that most agree that it was a kiss from cheek to cheek most often. And either way, a kiss in the ancient Near East was an expression of familial affection. And we see that persist even in Jewish culture in the time of the New Testament. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus goes to the house of Simon the Pharisee and the woman of ill repute comes and, and wipes Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair and she kisses his feet. And the Pharisee is grumbling, what's this woman doing? Doesn't she know who she is? Well, if this guy was a teacher, he'd, he'd tell her to stop doing this. And Jesus rebukes Simon for looking down on the woman for her expressions of affection, but not bringing any of his own. Luke 7, 45, he says to Simon, you gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, hasn't ceased to kiss my feet. Jesus thinks it's plausible for Simon to have greeted him with a kiss. And so it shows that this practice persisted even into the first century AD. Uh, besides expressing familial affection, the kiss was also especially common as an expression of reconciliation between family members. We see that in the Old Testament as well, when Jacob and Esau are finally reconciled to one another. Genesis 33, 4 says that Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Same was true of Joseph's reconciliation with his brothers in Egypt, Genesis 45, 15. And in the parable of the prodigal son, the father sees his estranged son returning home, and he runs out to meet him, and Luke 15, 20 says he embraced him and kissed him. So the practice of the holy kiss in the early church was likely born out of the concept that the church was the family of God, that they were brothers and sisters in Christ. And so expressions of familial affection were appropriate between people who were not of the same physical family, but were of the same spiritual family. This was especially practiced when the church observed the Lord's table, because that was the time when repentant sinners who had been under church discipline were restored to fellowship in the church. And so their restoration and, and reconciliation to the family of God was sealed with a kiss of affection. And so often in his final greetings, Paul entreats the members of the church he's writing to, to greet one another with a holy kiss. We see it in Romans 16, 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 20, 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, and here. 
Peter says it in 1 Peter 5.14 to greet one another with a kiss of love. Now the kiss was a holy kiss because it was an expression of affection between saints, between the holy ones, ones who had been declared righteous in Christ and so were positionally holy. So therefore, uh, being a, a holy kiss shared among the holy ones, there were no thoughts of impropriety. There were no thoughts of taking advantage of the kiss for lustful purposes. But of course, the existence of phony Christians in the church always meant that something holy could be perverted into something sinful. And so interestingly, the second century apologist, Athenagoras, quoted an apocryphal text claiming that if the kiss was made with the slightest ulterior motive, it excludes one from eternal life. Now, obviously, that's not biblical, but it is illustrative of the care that was taken among the early church to ensure that this was a holy kiss. History tells us that the, the holy kiss fell out of practice around the 13th century, and its disuse is attributed to the fact that it became an insincere, formalized act of liturgy rather than an expression of sincere affection. Familiarity breeds contempt. Things become rituals, and they're practiced by rote rather than heartfelt expressions of genuine brotherly love. But the thing to take away here is the expression of brotherly familial affection and warm-hearted fellowship in a gathering of believers in Jesus without distinction between male or female or Jew or Gentile or rich or poor or slave or free. That was to mark the church, to transcend all of the divisions that those demographic lines posited for the people. That kind of transcending those divisions was absolutely unheard of in the ancient world. Sure, you kissed your family members, but here was a group of people from all different ethnicities, all different classes, all different ages and social statuses, rising above all of that, recognizing that none of those distinctions ultimately matters in the view of the unity that we have in Christ. And so they expressed that unity in a kiss of affection. And while we are not bound to express affection to one another in precisely the same way as was culturally appropriate in the first century, we are bound to express our brotherly love to one another in the family of God in ways that are appropriate. The, the manner in which affection is expressed is less important than the reality of sincerely expressing love and affection to one another. So that might be a firm handshake with a look in the eye. That might be words of tender encouragement and endearment. That might be an embrace, a hearty embrace of one another. Paul expresses that affection in this very letter. Again, 2 Corinthians 6, 11, our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. Chapter 7, verse 3, he says, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm reminded of Paul's words to the Philippians in Philippians 1, 7 and 8. He says, I have you in my heart. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This affection of Christ Jesus ought to mark those of us in Christ Jesus. This union with Christ that we share, we share in is so transcendent that it extends to people that we've never even met, let alone the people we sit next to every week. We see that in verse 13 where Paul says, all the saints greet you. 
Now, Paul could mean all the saints in Philippi, where he was writing from, or, or Macedonia, which would have included Thessalonica and Berea too. But I'm inclined to take all the saints as a reference to all believers everywhere, especially because the parallel in Romans 16, 16 has the call for a holy kiss followed by all the churches of Christ greet you, which definitely has a universal overtone to it there. But either way, whether it was all the believers in all the churches or whether it was all the believers just in Philippi, Paul is saying that even though the, the Corinthians have never met these other believers, that they're united to one another based upon their union to Christ, members of the same body under the direction of the head of the church. And based on that union, they send warm and affectionate and hearty greetings to their brothers and sisters. This reminds the Corinthians that there is a wider Christian community who's invested in their interest, uh, in the, has a vested interest rather in the health of their church. That they're not alone in praying for their healing of their divisions and, and the purging of the false doctrine of the false apostles from the church. It reminds them that, that no matter how alone or outnumbered they might feel, Christ has his people all throughout the world. And there's a family we've never even met whom we'll enjoy for eternity, with whom we will worship Christ forever on the new earth together, freed from sin and death. It reminds them that those things are true of Christians they've never met, and so it's definitely true of Christians they have met in their own congregation. And so they ought to express warm-hearted Christian affection to one another as a result of their spiritual union to Christ and to one another. And we need to do a better job of expressing affection in the church of Christ here in our day. Perhaps not, as I said, by kissing each other, but by expressing tender words, by a, by a genuine handshake, by sincere embraces. We, we need to do better than to sit purse-lipped and stodgy in the corner and to make light uh, of, of certain truths when we, we think things are getting too deep, you know? The, we, we just inject a little bit of levity so nothing gets, ever gets too solemn and sober. That's ridiculous. We ought to press into that solemnity as, people of, as the people of God, as the family of God. And we ought to know the love that we have for one another because it's expressed. Not only one know the other loves them, but that people outside of the church can see our love for one another so that they know that we're Christ's disciples. Don't rush up here to give me hugs after the sermon. No, I'm kidding. Do that if you want to. Well, we've seen Paul's optimistic exhortation, uh, exhortations, plural, sorry, and just now his affectionate greetings. And we come now to the third component of his final remarks here in 2 Corinthians, and that is number three, Trinitarian blessings. Trinitarian blessings. We see that in the benediction of verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And with this, we come to one of the great verses in the New Testament. Reflecting on this verse, one commentator said, no other Pauline letter concludes with a benediction so theologically imposing as this one. Another called it the most profound theological moment in the Pauline corpus. It's exalted for its content as a benediction wishing grace and love and fellowship upon this beleaguered congregation in Corinth. But it's also exalted because it takes a particularly Trinitarian form. It's the grace of Christ 
the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit for which Paul prays for the Corinthians. All three members of the Trinity are in plain view. And since in verse 11, Paul just mentioned the God of love and peace, which is to say the one God of love and peace, to mention the Father, Son, and Spirit together just a few verses later, and especially in an, in an exalted benediction like this, reveals that Paul believes the one God to exist in three persons. Paul is a Trinitarian. But what's interesting about that is that Paul seems to be a Trinitarian without thinking much about it. It's, he's almost subconsciously Trinitarian. The three persons of the Trinity just seem to leap from his heart to his pen. He doesn't argue for it. He doesn't say to himself, you know, well, hmm, mentioning the Father, Son, and Spirit so close together in the context of this formal benediction, I mean, that's going to confuse some people. They're going to wonder, you know, if I'm a monotheist, how can, there can be, how can there be three who are a God and yet there not be three gods? I better make sure I explain the Trinity here. Nope, this is the last verse. There is none of that. In fact, there's nothing like that in the entire New Testament. Where, where they're not nowhere, nowhere where an author formally takes, undertakes to explain how there can be one God and only one God, and yet how the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but the Father isn't the Son, and the Son isn't the Spirit, and the Spirit isn't the Father. All of that is taught, as it were, latently and, and spontaneously in the text. It's the underlying assumption of the authors of Scripture. They don't argue for it. They argue from it. As if nothing else could be more plain that there's one, than that there's one God eternally existent in co-equal, consubstantial, co-eternal persons. The triunity of God is just the air that Paul breathes. And that shows that despite all the complex explanations which seek to undermine the doctrine of the Trinity, it is a biblical doctrine that's assumed throughout the entire New Testament as if it were non-controversial as if it were just expected that every Christian believed it without controversy and without needing an explanation. And I'll actually have more to say about that next time in our next sermon as we take a longer look about the doc uh, at the doctrine of the Trinity, a doctrine that deserves so much more time than we were able to give it in the next few minutes. But for now, apart from the Trinitarian form, I want you to notice the redemptive content. We best know the Trinity not by contemplating the metaphysical complexities of the essence of deity, but by beholding the work of the triune God in redemption. And that's what Paul latches onto. He speaks of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in what does the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ consist? Well, Paul says it back in chapter eight, verse nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Though Christ was rich, although in his pre-existent eternal glory and deity he was in possession of spiritual riches whose wealth words are unable to describe, he nevertheless voluntarily and sacrificially renounced those riches and embraced the poverty of life and death as a human being precisely so that we who were destitute of God's favor and blessing could be enriched with the very righteousness of God himself. That is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Charles Hodge says, 
that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is, quote, the favor, the unmerited love, and all that springs from it of this divine person clothed in our nature. He goes on to say, everyone feels that this is precisely what he as a guilty, polluted, helpless sinner needs. If this glorious, mysteriously constituted, exalted Savior, Son of God and Son of Man, makes us the objects of his favor, of his grace, then is our present security and ultimate salvation rendered certain. All of our salvation hinges upon the grace of Christ flowing from the atoning work of his cross. And the grace that comes to us in Christ is rooted in the love of God the Father. It was the love of the Father that sent Christ to the cross. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 1, 9, by this, the love of God was manifested in us that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. It's by the love of the father that we know the grace of Christ. And yet while the father's love is the originating cause of Christ's grace to us, Nevertheless, it is not until we have been made partakers of the grace of Christ in salvation that we come to know the love of the Father by experience. That's why the love of the Father is second to the grace of Christ in this list. You'd expect Father, Son, Spirit. It's inverted here because we experience the grace of Christ before we experience the love of the Father, any, any, consciously anyway. It's then Paul says in Romans 5, 5, that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's then that we experience the love of the Father's adoption. 1 John 3, 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. This is the love of the God who is love, 1 John 4, 8. And from that love, Romans 8, 38 and 39, we can never be separated. Nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ. And if we had a thousand sermons to preach, we could never exhaust the depths of the love of the Father. To write the love of God above could drain an ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. And when we've tasted the grace of Christ and we've come to know the love of God, we're also brought into the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit in all of God's people was the pinnacle blessing of the new covenant. That God's spirit would not only be with his people, but would be in his people, working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure, writing the law on our hearts, causing us to walk in his ways, illumining the glory of Christ to our eyes so that we are transformed into that same image from glory to glory. The Spirit comforting us in our affliction, strengthening us for ministry, gifting us for service, empowering us to lay down our lives for the sake of the church. All of these blessings are comprehended in the boundless and powerful grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the infinite and unending love of the Father, and the sweet life-giving fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Friends, what more could we ask for? What better things could we wish for ourselves? If God said, here, here are three wishes. What do you want for yourself? The grace of Christ, the love of the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. 
Paul prays these blessings would be continually with all the Corinthians. Be with you all. I love that the last word of this, this text is all, all of you. Not one in the congregation, not even the bitter, rebellious minority was excluded from the prayer of blessing. Paul wished the very best for them and upon them. And of course, any pastor would do the same. That's my prayer for you, for each and every one of you, that, that you would, every last one of us in this room, all within the sound of my voice, all who knows what grace life is, would know the grace of Christ, the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. But of course, all those blessings are wrapped up in Christ so that union with Christ is the only way to lay hold of those blessings. And repentance and faith is the only way to be united to him. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as Savior and Lord, if he is not your personal Lord and Savior, your King and Sovereign, if he's not the great passion of your life, if you remain dead in your sins, I entreat you to come to Christ. To, he, nothing stops you. All has been accomplished. He did go to that cross. The, the love of the Father has sent him to the cross. The grace of Christ kept him there. The power of the Holy Spirit raised him from the grave. He's accomplished all that you would ever need to do for righteousness. He's paid for all the sins that you've ever committed if you turn from them in repentance and trust in Christ alone for righteousness. And for my brothers and sisters, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Father, how we, we love your word. Thank you for revealing your mind to us in the, in the scriptures. Thank you for the grace given to the Apostle Paul to endure all that needed to be endured so that all these experiences that led to this letter could be had and endured and, and, and he would... Uh, come out on the other side of them. Thank you for the Holy Spirit's illumination or inspiration and illumination of Scripture. We thank you that, that your glory is on display in your word and that your glory sanctifies your people. Father, sanctify your people. I pray that you would work in their hearts, take all of the blessings of all of this letter through all of these past years of exposition and bring them to bear on the hearts and minds of your people. Call certain truths to mind as a result of, of our study together when their minds alight on certain verses of 2 Corinthians. May they be instruments of sanctification and holiness in the lives of these people. Pray that you would get what you are worthy of by sanctifying your people according to the truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.